You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual I don't watch a lot of porn, which is weird, you know, considering, considering all the advice I've given people about porn over the years and considering the porn festival I've been curating for the last 15 years. I've always preferred erotica, dirty books to dirty movies, maybe because dirty books were easier to come by when I was a tech oblivious at-risk youth. There was no internet back then. There were video players and places you could rent videos, regular and dirty, But even if I'd wanted to watch straight porn, which was the only kind of porn videos the stores in my neighborhood carried, I wasn't going to walk into the local video store and rent a porn movie from the guy behind the counter who was going to high school with my older brother. And to clarify, when I say dirty books were easier to come by, if you'll pardon the expression, I mean they were easier to shoplift. As an adult, I went back to the store I stole dirty books from when I was a kid and bought armloads of books because I'm Catholic like that. Anyway, after the internet came along, after the porn sites came along, the various porn tubes that upended and destroyed the porn industry, I didn't visit those sites much because I don't really watch porn. I read about them, of course, and a lot of what I read shocked me. They seemed so lax, the porn tubes. They seemed so easily abused. When we launched Hump, my porn short film festival, in 2005, we required releases from everyone who appeared in a film that made it into the festival. You couldn't get your film into Hump, a festival with no online presence until the pandemic started. You couldn't get your film into Hump without proving to us that everyone in it was of legal age and had consented to appearing in Hump. First and most importantly, we wouldn't want to show a film featuring someone who didn't know they were being filmed or were too young to consent to being filmed or didn't want to be in a film in Hump because it's wrong. It's also illegal. If we didn't get releases, if we didn't get everyone's consent from hump performers, we could get in trouble. But somehow when Pornhub came along just two years later in 2007, they didn't bother with any of that. They didn't require proof of age. They didn't require model releases. They didn't give a shit about consent or copyright. Anyone could upload anything to Pornhub. Anyone could download anything from Pornhub. And the site was, from day one, packed with clips that, well, we wouldn't include in hump for moral as well as legal reasons. Now they're making changes at Pornhub. After an expose in the New York Times, which didn't just show that Pornhub was home to revenge porn and non-consensual porn and videos with minors in them, which everyone knew, but humanized those people, mostly young girls who had been victimized, Pornhub took action. But only after it began to cost them. After Visa and MasterCard cut them off. Now the site has purged millions of videos And only verified users can upload to Pornhub now. And no one can download anything from Pornhub anymore. And that's important because the ability to download videos from Pornhub meant that no clip ever really disappeared from the site. A clip that was removed because it was posted without the consent of the person in it instantly reappeared. This is good news and bad news. It's good news that only verified users can post to Pornhub. But it's not great news that they still don't need model releases. And as of now, as Samantha Cole reported yesterday Advice, all you need to do to get verified at Pornhub is submit a selfie of yourself holding a piece of paper with your username and Pornhub.com written on it. 
I have to say, after rejecting, I don't know how many films submitted to hump because the releases seemed fishy. This seems like a pretty low bar they're setting at Pornhub. Seems like a system that can be easily gamed because just like the internet is a thing now, so is Photoshop. There are lots of options out there, lots of places where people can find ethically produced porn, sites like Make Love Not Porn, a site we've talked about on this show for at least a decade. But if this becomes a moral panic, or more of a moral panic than it's already become, ethical porn sites and producers are going to get swept up in it and taken down too. And we should bear in mind that there is a site online where more child porn and revenge porn circulates in a day than circulated on Pornhub in 15 years, and that site is Facebook. In the bad news column, I'm hearing from adult performers who lost half their income in the last week or more because of what Visa and MasterCard did. Adults who were uploading ethically produced consensual content to Pornhub featuring adults who consented to those videos appearing on Pornhub. The irony here, and it's a bitter one, is that the changes, these changes that Pornhub has made, not allowing people to download videos, only allowing verified users to upload videos, these are things sex workers and porn performers have been asking Pornhub to do for years. So they could profit from their work. So the content they created wasn't ripped off. And so their content didn't appear alongside child porn or revenge porn and wasn't tainted by association. If the people who own Pornhub, if the people who'd gotten rich running Pornhub, had only listened to sex workers and porn performers they wouldn't be in the trouble they're in now. All right, coming up on today's show, Dr. Rachel Gelman joins us on the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast to talk about the pelvic floor. Women have them, men have them, non-binary people have them, and they're very important for pleasurable sex. That's on the Magnum, on the micro, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, all that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy At-Risk Youth. I'm calling in with a quarantine sex success story from San Francisco, California. I'm a gay man, and uh, I have to backtrack to start this story. Back in 2018, I had a fuck buddy who was wonderful, uh, but because of the size of his penis, I had to stop seeing him. He was just too big. Um, I really enjoyed mentally having sex with him, but physically it, it just seemed impossible. Cut to quarantine. He and his husband, who normally are in an open relationship, practiced monogamy for the first part of quarantine. And I got a message from him out of the blue. You know, we'd say contact as friends, but he said, you know, I, I really miss topping because in his relationship with his husband, he only bottoms. And he said, he asked me if I would be willing to work out some kind of semi-exclusive situation with him. Well, that sounded perfect to me because I had been going without sex entirely, but I knew that I had this obstacle to overcome. So I decided to use my time during quarantine to train. I purchased some sex toys from Mr. S Leather, the wonderful uh, sex and fetish superstore here in San Francisco. And uh, I bought myself a medium-sized egg-shaped butt plug and worked with that for a little while and then graduated up to a uh, six-inch 
suction cup dildo, which was the first one I've ever purchased. Six inch uh, girth radius, by the way. (laughs) I have to say I've been practicing with it a couple times a week and I now have the ability to take this fuck buddy no problem. It's pretty incredible, actually. I, I have worked my way up. So I want to remind all your listeners out there that if you can see it, you can be it. All these things are possible. While in quarantine from the plague, Shakespeare wrote King Lear, Sir Isaac Newton developed the theory of gravity, Boccaccio wrote the Decameron, and you, caller, you trained your whole to take your fuck buddy's enormous dick. Good for you for making productive use of your time in quarantine, just like Shakespeare, Boccaccio, and Sir Isaac Newton. If you have a sexual success story you'd like to share with us that we can play at the top of the show, we like to start out each week's show with something positive before we get to everybody's drama and problems, give us a call 206-302-2064 or use the voice memo app on your phone to record your sexual success story and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. And we might start next week's show with your success story. Hey, 30-year-old woman here. Okay, so basically I just started dating this guy about a month ago. We have a lot in common. I really like him. I can very easily see myself falling in love with him. And we're sexually into a lot of the same things. We're both really open-minded. So far, we seem to communicate very well. However, in the past, I've always found that to be totally kind of physically satisfied. Sexually, I need a man with a larger than average penis. And he happens to have an average-sized penis, which obviously is totally fine, but he can get me off in a bunch of other ways, but I just typically prefer PIV sex for to orgasm. So I guess my question is, you know, I don't want to ruin something really good because of this one thing, but it is also really important to me. And so I'm wondering if like we actually aren't just compatible because it is really important to me or I should try to get over this, you know, maybe explore like some different toys with him. I guess also just how to talk to him without offending him. So I'm just confused. If you need a guy with a giant dick and you won't be happy with a guy with an average dick, then the minute you realize the guy that you're seeing, that you're dating, has an average dick, the dick that isn't going to satisfy you over the long haul, you should stop dating that guy. And it's it's horrible, really. You know, a straight guy who's into big tits can tell whether the woman that he's interacting with, thinking about dating or on a date with has big tits before he takes her to bed for the first time. But a woman who really likes a big dick or a dude who really likes a big dick for the most part, generally, depending on where you meet, can't tell that the guy that she's on a date with or thinking about going to bed with or just matched with on Tinder has an average penis or a small penis or an enormous penis until after she's gone to bed with him for the first time. So part of sleeping with somebody for the first time, part of dating is vetting, is auditioning, is doing your screw diligence and trying to determine whether this is somebody that you could be with long-term if long-term is what you're after. And long-term isn't what everyone is after, but it is what you're after. 
And you have determined after dating this guy for a while and fucking him a few times that perhaps he's not your ideal partner dick-wise. So then the question becomes, what do you do? You really like him and there's lots of other ways that he can get you off. But unless you're willing to have a conversation that really might bruise his ego, might make him feel inadequate about wanting to incorporate some larger toys or maybe even wanting him to strap a very large toy on once in a while and fuck you like a man with a 12-inch penis, temporary 12-inch penis, 12-inch penis purchased down at the 12-inch penis store, you're never going to be fully satisfied in this relationship. And so what do you do? It really is a difficult conversation to imagine having because some men are going to react very badly. In having this conversation, you risk a violation of the campsite rule. The campsite rule. Try to leave people in better shape than you found them. Going to a guy and saying, yeah, your dick doesn't do it for me. Yeah, that might, if the relationship ends and it could end after those words leave your mouth, that might leave him in worse shape than you found him. Just as I imagine there are things that a guy could say to you about your body that would bruise your ego. So what do you do? Well, you could end the relationship or you could have a conversation that isn't about his inadequate dick but about your interest in toys and perhaps big toys and gauge his response. And if he's receptive to this conversation, if he's open to it, if he doesn't seem threatened by the fact that there are bigger penises in the world or larger toys, toys that are larger than his dick that you would like to have inside you, maybe you can work your way up to – him strapping on a giant 12-inch penis every once in a while and really giving you the PIV that you miss, the PIV that only a 12-inch dick can give you. But you really do have to be careful here because you are in grave danger in raising this subject of violating the campsite rule. Other women I know who have your preferences, other gay men I know who have your preferences have opted for the Discovery period, see if the dick is big enough to contemplate being in a relationship with this person. And if it isn't, end it. But that's not the only route. If this guy is secure enough, maybe you could have him and have the filled up pussy you want to. Hey, Dan. I'm a gay cis male in my early 30s. So I've got a partial response to something you said last week and a question that comes out of it. You said that men without refractory periods are like unicorns. Well, I guess I'm that unicorn, and it's a bit of a curse, and I know that sounds like a humble brag, but I'm being honest. So my question is that my sex partners, when they learn this about me, expect a lot. For example, one guy that I hook up with regularly gets mad if I don't orgasm more than once, but sometimes that's all I want. And it's not limited to just this one guy. I feel like certain portrayals and porn especially have made this kind of a trope that a true top can keep going and will. Any suggestions on how to change or manage expectations? This guy who gets mad when you only want to have one orgasm, why do you continue to hook up with this guy? I don't think you should sleep with somebody who gets mad when you don't have an orgasm during sex or can't get it up one time during sex or if you are one of those unicorn males out there who do not have a refractory period, uh, only want to have one orgasm despite your superpower, your ability to have more than one or one right after the other. Yeah, the first time that guy got mad at you 
for only wanting to have as many orgasms as you wanted to have or felt comfortable having during that particular encounter. That should have been the last time you fucked that guy. That's one way to manage someone's expectations. If someone has unrealistic expectations or makes selfish demands or pitches fits or gets mad at you about wanting to be done having sex, don't fuck that person anymore. And then their expectations aren't in any way relevant to you ever again for the rest of your life. The best way to manage expectations with new partners is to not tell them about this right away or if you don't wish to, to not tell them about your no refractory period superpower at all ever. Have your one orgasm and be done. If it's something you decide with a particular guy you do want to share with him eventually, you can manage his expectations. You can tell him the first time you show him your superpower, first time you show him that you can fly or walk through walls, that this isn't something you enjoy doing every time. You could even white lie it just a little bit and say that it doesn't always feel good for you to have more than one orgasm. And so despite your ability to have more than one orgasm in one session, you don't always want to and he'll have to respect that. And I think if you set someone's expectations like that, they will feel honored and thrilled when you do want to have more than one and not cheated out of anything when you don't because you've already told them to expect that usually – most often, when you fuck them, you will be, like most men, one and done, not one and one and one and one and one and one and done. As for the porn trope where they make it look like there are millions of guys out there who can just go and go and go, can have one orgasm and then five minutes later have another orgasm, I think a lot of that is induced by erectile dysfunction drugs where a guy comes and usually in the refractory period when the male's body is flooded with prolactin and oxytocin, uh, interest in sex instantly fades and the erection goes away. But because of ED drugs, often the guy comes and he stays hard. He may not be as aroused as he was, but he is able to continue fucking or to appear to continue fucking and maybe the erection lasts longer than his refractory period and then he's ready to go in 15 minutes or a half an hour. The younger a person is, the younger a man is, uh, the shorter his refractory period is. For an 18-year-old, it's about 15 minutes. Uh, the older you get, the longer it gets. When you're 70-ish, refractory periods are 24 hours-ish. But there are a lot of people out there who now are taking ED drugs recreationally. They have their orgasm and the erection sticks around until their refractory period is done and they're horny again and ready to have another orgasm. Porn schmorn. Don't worry about porn. Don't worry about the way porn makes ideal tops look. Porn makes ideal bottoms look a certain way, makes ideal tops look a certain way. If you find yourself in bed with somebody who's expecting it to be a porn scene, that's their problem. They have unrealistic expectations and they're going to have to recalibrate their expectations around the reality of sex and not the fantasy that is portrayed in porn. And so that is quite literally – not your problem and not your concern if you wind up in bed with people as a top, as a gay man who identifies as a top, whose expectations have been shaped by pornography. If you get any pushback, any grief about not being a top like they've seen in porn, tell them that you're the kind of top that they're going to encounter in the wild, in reality. And porn ain't reality and reality ain't porn. Hey, I work in – a job where I sometimes have to have to ask for ID and every once in a while, not very often, but every once in a while, if it's a, a couple that's there and I said, do you have your ID? 
and it's an opposite sex couple, like the man will pull out his wallet and he's got both his ID and the woman's ID. And I'm, I always get kind of creeped out by that. Like what is going on here? And, you know, I've never seen this happen with a same sex couple and I've never seen it happen with an opposite sex couple where the woman pulls out a purse and she's got her ID and the guy's ID. But every once in a while I ask for ID and the man pulls out both his ID and the woman's ID. And it's kind of creepy Maybe there's a reason for it that's not creepy. So if you have any listeners that let their husbands carry their ID, if they have a good reason for it other than some sexist bullshit, what's going on? Thanks. There were plenty of times when I went out with my boyfriend years ago where he carried my ID, where he had my ID in his wallet. And on each and every one of those occasions, I was in drag. So... When this happens, when there's an opposite sex couple at the place where you are checking IDs and you ask for IDs and the guy pulls both IDs out of his wallet, what is she wearing? Is she wearing a dress that has pockets? Is she wearing jeans? Does she have her own wallet on her? Does she have a purse? Probably not. So I think there's a little misattribution here. You're attributing this to some sort of sexism like the man ordering for the woman in the restaurant or perhaps you worry these women are being trafficked into your establishment where IDs have to be produced. No, 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 no. She at home turned to her boyfriend and said, here, and handed him her ID. That's what I did every time my boyfriend was carrying my ID for me because there wasn't a pocket in my skin-tight latex dress that night. So next time this happens, take a quick look at what she's wearing and ask yourself if she has any pockets. And if she doesn't have any pockets, just like I didn't have any pockets back then when I was doing drag and running around my boyfriend, that's what's going on here. Not sexism, unless, of course, you consider what women are obligated to wear when they're out in the town with their boyfriends. Sexist, not sexism in this case, just a lack of pockets. Hey, I'm a girl from Missouri. I'm 21 years old. I recently got out of a very, very serious relationship of like six years. We have a child together. We're like high school sweethearts. Um, It ended really, really badly, and I ended up, like, basically leaving the state of Virginia to come back home after living with him. That's how bad it was. Like, I literally just completely up and left one night. And I guess my question is, I'm just very emotionally detached altogether from what happened without going into too much detail. I'm very, very emotionally detached. When is a good time to start dating again. I mean, I was in a very serious relationship and I feel like to a certain extent that you are supposed to wait a respective amount of time to like actually start, you know, seeing somebody, but I've been, you know, kind of casually dating and I feel guilty, but I also don't at the same time, if that makes sense. I guess my question is, if like you're emotionally detached, is it okay to see other people or are you disrespecting your other partner? Everybody grieves in their own way. I ended a relationship once and it was tough and kind of heartbreaking and we'd been together for a while and he reacted by leaving the house every night and dating a million people and I reacted to the breakup even though I initiated the breakup by staying home and moping for three or four months. He wasn't doing it wrong. I wasn't doing it wrong. We were just doing it differently. You ended a six-year relationship You ghosted, it sounds like, on your former partner. You just left one night and you're ready to date again. And that's no disrespect to your ex-partner. It's actually completely irrelevant to your ex-partner who no doubt feels probably more conflicted or more disrespected by the way you just up and left one night in the middle of the night than by anything else you've done 
before or since or could do since. So don't worry about it. If you are okay with this, if this is making you feel good, if it feels right for you at this time to get out there and date casually, then you should do it. Even if you were out there dating seriously and it felt right, you should do it. The only reason it feels wrong is you think there's some arbitrary set amount of time that someone is supposed to wait after ending a relationship before they start dating again. Let that go. That is bullshit. Do what feels right for you at this moment. All of this is not to say that when you end a relationship, you shouldn't take your former partner's feelings into consideration. You should if your former partner is worthy of having their feelings taken into consideration. If you left a former partner, if you broke up with somebody because they were abusive or controlling or an asshole or the relationship had been dead for a long time or they were cheating on you, yeah, I don't think then you need to necessarily take their feelings into consideration. But if you break up with somebody and it's an otherwise amicable breakup and you are sad for them and they are sad and everybody's sad and you are still perhaps living together, beginning to date right away, right under their nose, that would be cruel. That would be inconsiderate. In a situation like that, yeah, out of consideration for your former partner's feelings, you might want to wait before you start dating again. But in a case where you left your partner in the middle of the night, sounds like it was pretty toxic, and your partner is not in the state where you're living now and dating now, you are not obligated to take your ex's feelings into consideration in some existential way. Your partner's not in the state where you live. He's not even probably aware that you're dating casually, and there's no set amount of time you have to wait. Do what feels right for you. Hi, Dan. I'm an early 30s cis heterosexual woman living in the Midwest, and I have a question about how to break up with a good guy friend's daily texts. I met the friend in question a few years ago about the time I moved to the city where I live now. We've hung out ever since, including a period of a few months last year in which we were friends with benefits. Currently, we're just good friends. We hang out socially distantly regularly and share our current dating mishaps. It's great. However, Somewhere over the time we've known each other, he established, I think it was him anyway, a routine where we text each other good night and good morning. Every day. It's not something I find particularly weird, but I also don't think it strengthens the friendship, and I don't do it with any of my other close friends. I recently started seeing a guy that I really like, and he stayed over at my place a few times. I find myself not looking at my phone in the mornings to avoid the possibility that he'll see these messages because I think he might worry that there's a covert romance. Uh, we're pretty much exclusive at this point. In addition, his former partner cheated on him, and he's still grieving that breakup, and I want to avoid any awkwardness it might cause. I really value the guy friend's friendship, and I don't want to reduce it. I just want to stop these robotic daily greetings. I don't want to just ignore them, because I think it would be rude, and he might read more into it than there is. How do I tell him this without offending him? Short term, while you work up the nerve to have what should be a pretty easy and quick conversation with your friend who's been sending you these texts, these good morning and good night texts all this time, you could change how you've saved his name on your phone. You could change him to Aunt Matilda. So if the text pops up and your new boyfriend sees good morning and good night on your phone, he can just think you have a weird relationship with one of your aunts. But it shouldn't have to come to that. You shouldn't have to change how you say this guy on your phone. You should just send him a text if your relationship is primarily texts right now saying you kind of have to stop. Would you please stop with the good morning, 
good night thing. Text me during the day when you think of me, if there's something you want to share, but no more good morning, good night. You don't even owe him an explanation. You don't have to tell him why you want these text messages to stop. Of course, you can. You can tell him you're seeing someone and it's a little boyfriendy what he's doing, sending you the good morning and good night texts. And you don't want your new boyfriend to misinterpret things. And so you're not ending the friendship. You're not telling him he can never text you. It's just he shouldn't send you these good morning, good night texts anymore. Even if you weren't seeing someone right now, you should be able to tell a person who is your friend that they're sending you messages in a way that isn't welcome, that kind of gets on your nerves and you'd like them to message you differently, not never message you, just not send you these particular messages for no particular reason twice a day. So, yeah, use your words. You can text these words to him. You can tell him to stop texting you like this via text. But if you just can't bring yourself to do this for fear of hurting your old friend's feelings, then change his caller ID to Aunt Matilda. Hey, Dan, 24-year-old woman from the West Coast, and I have a question about anal sex. When I have anal, I feel kind of gassy afterwards, kind of like there's air stuck in my stomach and it's not very comfortable. I pegged my boyfriend for the first time last night and it was awesome, except for the fact that he felt the same way afterwards. I'm wondering if you or your listeners have any suggestions about how to make this not happen or make it less uncomfortable. Um, I looked a bit online and I found that it's pretty common but I didn't find any suggestions about how to make it not happen. There is no fix for this. You're just going to have to fart it out afterwards. When you get fucked in the ass, it can feel like you've had a little bit of air pumped into you, perhaps because you have. And that air that gets pumped into you, there's only one way out for it. You're not going to burp it up. You're going to have to fart it out. You will when you get fucked in the ass. Your boyfriend will. And congratulations on his first pegging. He'll have to fart it out a little bit when he gets fucked in the ass. It's a side effect. It isn't fatal. It's nothing to be embarrassed about. It's a known known, a known side effect of getting fucked in the ass. Just take a moment alone if you need to. If you're embarrassed farting in front of each other, just take a moment alone in the bathroom and fart it all back out. Hi, Dan. A relative of mine recently announced to us that they are transitioning from male to female. And with the holidays coming up, was wondering if you had any good gift ideas for trans women or people in the process of transitioning to female. I can appreciate the dilemma here. On the one hand, you could get her a gift that was in line with gifts that you've given her in the past, which I assume aren't gendered. I assume in the past you didn't get her chainsaws or lumberjack boots. You got her chocolates or you got her a book on a subject that interested her. You could get her a similar gift, a gift like gifts you've given her in the past and that would communicate to her that you still feel the same way about her that you've always felt about her. But if you think it's important that you get her a gift that acknowledges that she's transitioning, there are a lot of really terrific books out there about the trans experience. I would recommend She's Not There, A Life in Two Genders by Jennifer Finney Boylan. She's a columnist for the New York Times. She's a professor. She's incredibly smart. Uh, She's Not There is a terrific memoir about being trans. And add it to that box of chocolates. Add it to that book on a different subject that you know that she's interested in. And that would be your way of communicating. You still feel the same way 
about her that you always felt about her. She's just as important to you now as she has ever been, but that you're acknowledging also that she shared some big and very important news uh, about her life with all of you, and you want to honor that. Hence the addition of Jennifer Finney Boylan's book to the usual book on a subject that you know interested her in the past or the box of chocolates that you usually get her. Hey, Dan, gay guy calling from the Southeast. My point of choice is voyeur video, hidden cam, spy cam, anything voyeur. And I know a lot of it isn't real and obviously staged, but some of it's real and that's what I like. Recently, while surfing, I stumbled across video of me. It was taken at a gay bathhouse I go to. The video captured me floating on a mat in the pool, naked, of course, on both my back and my front, um, and also me in the outdoor shower, just showering, although other guys captured on video were playing in the shower. So nothing scandalous for me, but did capture me in the pool and in the shower. So I can't figure out why I'm so enraged by this since I enjoy seeing others in similar situations. I know it's totally fucking hypocritical and I'm not even a Republican, but what else does it say? Do I stop looking at voyeur stuff online um, or do I continue and just get over my rage and accept the fact I'll never be able to run for president with this stuff out there on the internet? Um, Side note, I have spoken to the owners of the bathhouse before because I've suspected guys were filming me and others. And some of my friends won't even go there anymore because of it. The bathhouse says they can't ban phones and laptops and stuff at the pool, but I think they can, but that's another story. I saved the video, showed it to the manager, but he didn't seem to care, but he did make an announcement, big deal. So dealing with the bathhouse is a different situation, but what do I do about me? So basically these violations of other people's privacy of other people's consent, that was all okay with you until your privacy was violated. You understand that you're a hypocrite. You admit to being a hypocrite. I'm not calling you a hypocrite. You embraced the term. So what do you do about that? Well, you know, where there is cognitive dissonance, I enjoy this kind of porn. When this happened to me, I did not enjoy that feeling. You need to think about that. Maybe you do need to talk to a therapist about that. There's something about violating others knowingly participating in the violation of others, creating demand for the violation of others that appeals to you and yet to be violated in that exact same way enrages you. So you recognize that this is not okay, that this is a a violation, that this is uh, non-consensual to be filmed like this in a public place where you have a reasonable expectation of privacy. A lot of these voyeur videos shot through people's windows, not through wide open windows with the lights on and people basically having sex in front of the window who wish to be seen, but cameras placed in corners where the curtains didn't quite cover or cameras that have been hidden in hotel rooms or hidden in bags in locker rooms or people surreptitiously filming with their ever-present camera phones in spaces where Although they are semi-public, like a bathhouse, there is a reasonable expectation of some privacy as respect, mutual respect for each other's privacy in this space as part of the social contract that makes that kind of space and that kind of sex possible. And yeah, you were fine with all those violations until it happened to you. So what do you do about that? Well, either you get over your bad self and stop being mad 
about this thing that happened to you that you had no problem when it happened to other people. You enjoyed when it happened to other people or you stop enjoying or consuming, creating more demand for this kind of porn. You recognize that this is now that it's happened to you, which is kind of a conservative thing. I wonder if you're a conservative. You know, it's okay until it happens to me and then it's not okay. You recognize now it's not okay. And you stop watching this kind of porn unless it's faked. And there's plenty of good fake voyeur porn out there. Unless it's faked, you can continue to enjoy the faked porn. But you say it's the voyeur videos where there are consent violations that really turn you on. Yeah, dude, something you want to process perhaps with a therapist. All that said, we are each of us a mass of contradictions. You may never be able to resolve this. Enjoying this kind of porn, you may not be able to help continuing to enjoy this kind of porn while still being enraged at the thought of starring in this kind of porn. Still, maybe, perhaps, something you might want to talk with a therapist about. Hi, Dan. We're a couple in our early 30s who've been exploring non-monogamy for over a decade, and we had a quick question for you. We're longtime Magnum subscribers and first-time callers. We've been slowly starting to tell more people about non-monogamy in our lives, and we've been using the term coming out. But we told one of our friends this, who is a, a gay male, and he was a little taken aback, didn't really like that we were using the phrase coming out. We were telling him, you know, we've come out to other people and you know, that type of thing. He didn't really like that we were using the phrase coming out because for him, that was a very personal thing that, that he went through. For his sexuality. Right. And so we were just kind of wanting to get your opinion on this. Like, obviously, when we talk with him about this in the future, we'll be much more careful about using that phrase. But is this something that we need to be careful of in general? And is there a better way to say this? We overall um, want to be more considerate. Right. But aren't really sure how, you know, how big of a deal or if this is really offensive. I entered coming out as into Google and the suggested searches were coming out as ace, as bi, coming out as non-binary, coming out as bi while married, coming out as bi to parents, coming out as poly, kinky, conservative, a socialist, an atheist, demisexual, Dalit. We don't own gay men, gay people, trans people. We don't own coming out the metaphor. It has been adopted widely by others. And I think it is perfectly appropriate for straight couples, opposite sex couples and polyamorous or open relationships to use the metaphor coming out of the closet. You know, gay people talk about coming out of the closet. Why were we in the closet in the first place? Well, we were consigned there, shoved into the closet by the assumption and expectation that everyone is straight and straight is the default setting. And straight isn't an entirely unreasonable assumption to make about a person, considering that 90 plus percent, maybe 95 percent of everyone is straight. It is a perfectly reasonable assumption to make. But when it's made about you, when you're not straight, it's painful. And when people assume you're straight and you're not, there comes a point in your life where you have to take the risk of correcting the record. We have to come out of the closet and there can be great personal cost to coming out of the closet. Similar to the heterosexual assumption for couples is the monogamous assumption. Monogamy is the default setting, particularly for opposite-sex couples. And so opposite-sex couples who are in open relationships are sort of shoved into a closet, a different closet, but a closet just the same by the monogamous assumption. And not all couples who are open feel safe coming out, just like not all people who are gay feel safe coming out. And it may not be as risky for an opposite-sex couple with all the heterosexual privilege that they still have at their fingertips to come out, but there are still risks. 
people who come out as poly or open, heterosexual couples who come out as poly or open, have been ostracized by their families, have lost their jobs, in some cases have lost their children. And so I feel as a gay man who came out many years ago when it was a lot riskier perhaps in some places than it is now to come out, I have no problem as a gay man when I hear straight, open couples talk about coming out, talk about how they had to sit down and share with family, with friends, something that they worried that they would be judged for, shamed for, ostracized for, not invited to Thanksgiving dinner because of. Yeah, I think the similarity of those experiences means that open poly opposite sex couples are as entitled to use the coming out metaphor as gay guys. So maybe out of consideration for your hypersensitive friends, hypersensitive feelings, you won't use it around him. But I don't think that you should worry about having used it around him that one time or using it around other people in the future. Welcome out. Hey, Dan. I gave birth to my baby just over two years ago, and I've unfortunately dealt with a number of mental and physical problems ever since. I've had some of them really swept aside under the guise of being a new mother whose body is meant to feel weird, and I got really sick because of it. Uh, one of the issues that I've dealt with that I've swept aside is uh, urinary and sexual dysfunction ever since my baby was born. I have brought this up to my doctor and have gotten the usual bodies change talk. If things were just a little different, I could be okay with that. It's expected. But vaginal penetrative sex seems to be really, really pleasurable for me and something I really enjoyed with my partner. And it's just gone. I feel nothing. If I feel anything, it's pain near my vaginal opening. Also, I pee a little a lot of the time. It's embarrassing. And I can't go for a run or I'm worried to sneeze in front of people uh, or in front of my partner. It's really hard to feel like an adult, sexy, normal woman when one of my favorite sexual acts seems to be yanked away from me and I feel like I smell like pee. I really want to advocate for myself with my doctor and speak to her about this again. I need her to take this more seriously. But it's really hard to find resources that talk about some options so I can go into it with some information since she seems unwilling to address it more fully. Women's sexual dysfunction seems to be written and spoken about really euphemistically, definitely more so than any other kind of physical ailment or dysfunction. And it's really infantilizing. If you or your listeners or your experts could speak a little bit about any of this, I would really appreciate it. Joining me by phone, Dr. Rachel Gelman is a pelvic floor physical therapist and the owner of Pelvic Wellness and Physical Therapy in San Francisco. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Gelman. You were the person I wanted to speak with after hearing this call. Thank you so much for having me. And you can call me Rachel, by the way. Oh, well, well thank you, Rachel. Um, first things first, what the fuck with this woman's doctor? Yeah, I mean, I was so glad when you reached out to do this call because I unfortunately hear this and see this every day. So it's definitely not this one doctor or this like one isolated incident. This is happening a lot where people are having babies, being sent home, and then just kind of, in my opinion, forgotten about and told to just kind of deal with it. And it, it's, 
it's awful and it needs to change. And so I'm very glad that we're talking about it because it's a problem. <laughs> how, how common is this sort of sexual dysfunction and urinary incontinence after a pregnancy? Oh, it's very common. I mean, depending on what study you were to look at, there's going to be different numbers, but I would say a lot. <laughs> it's very, very common. Um, but that what I always tell patients and people is that just because it's common doesn't mean it should be normal and that it shouldn't be accepted as a new reality for people because there's things that can be done to help and it doesn't need to be someone's new normal by any means. And it, it's insane that that's kind of how our society and unfortunately the medical community still kind of looks at it, but, Oh, you had a baby. And now, yeah, you're going to pee your pants or you're not going to be able to have sex or it's not going to be as pleasurable and it's just not how it should be and it doesn't have to be that way. It just, it flabbergasts me that that the caller feels like it's on her to do the research, to find the resources that she can arm herself with that information and then go confront her doctor. Yeah. And that's just such a sad statement on not not just the fact that the doctor isn't being solicitous about this very common uh, occurrence after a, a pregnancy, but that the doctor has been so dismissive that her patient does, feels yeah. like she needs to arm up before she goes back in yeah. there or she will be dismissed again. And, you know, my, my first impulse and Nancy's first impulse when we listened to the call together was get a new doctor. But what are the odds that she gets a doctor who's the <laughs> same? Yeah, it's, you know, I, I would feel the same way. And I tell patients that too, if they feel like they're not getting the care they want from their provider, that they, they should definitely find someone new. But yeah, it's so, it's, it's so hard to predict would they find someone different. I, I mean, I'm happy to provide resources or places that they could look to find a provider that would be hopefully more well-informed and definitely, you know, hopefully not be dismissive. But yeah, it's insane that that person, this caller, has to do all this work and not, you know, be getting information off the bat and not feel like she's being supported by her provider. I'm at a loss for words when I hear these stories. So, so where does she begin to look for the resources, if not for her doctor or her her new doctor? And I really call mm-hmm. and encourage you to get a new doctor, someone you feel comfortable speaking with mm-hmm. about about sex. And all and everything else. Whether she needs to arm herself with her new doctor, where can she find resources that'll give her some more information about what treatments are available and what she can do to address uh, pain during vaginal intercourse and uh, the urinary incontinence? Yeah. So, off the the first resource I think of when I hear these symptoms is there's a medical association called the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health, which is quite a mouthful, um, but it's Ishwish. And they have not only a find the provider section on their website, but they have a whole list of resources, books that would be beneficial for this patient. I definitely think if she could find, I don't know where she's located, but if she could find a pelvic floor physical therapist, I definitely think that would be beneficial. Even if she didn't end up seeing a pelvic floor PT in person, they might be able to recommend a doctor that they know. Um, you know, that would be able to help. We're usually a pretty tight community in terms of knowing who we want to work with and who's a a good supportive provider. Um, And a really great website to find a pelvic floor PT is pelvicrehab.com. So those are usually the first two websites I send people to if they're looking for a provider or looking for resources, because from those websites, there's usually 
more links to lead them to other providers, other books, all sorts of things that can help them find someone who definitely I agree with you, this person should find a new provider or a different person to see, as well as arm them with the information to go in and say like, look, this, these studies show that there are things that I can do or be given so that I'm no longer leaking when I sneeze. I'm no longer having pain with sex. Um, and it's unfortunate that a patient would need to come educate their, their provider. But, um, you know, sometimes that has to happen. And I, but I would say finding a different provider and providers in this case, I think a, a different doctor, as well as, like I said, a pelvic floor physical therapist would be a good, good plan or a good starting point for this caller. Let's back up for a second. Um, what is the pelvic floor uh, for folks who aren't <laughs> familiar with that term? The pelvic floor is a muscular bowl or hammock inside of the pelvis, and it supports all the pelvic organs. So the bladder, um, the uterus, or the prostate. So everyone has a pelvic floor. Most people hear pelvic floor and they think, oh, it's just someone who has a vagina. And that's not the case. Dan, you have a pelvic floor. I have a pelvic floor. Even my cat has a pelvic floor, but that's a whole different discussion. <laughs> it's um, like Oprah, but, but pelvic floors. You get a pelvic yeah, floor, you, you get, get a pelvic one, floor. You get one, exactly. So the, it supports the, like I said, the bladder, the uterus or the prostate and the colon. So it's supporting all those organs and it's involved in starting and stopping the flow of urine, um, maintaining continence. That's why we don't poop our pants. It's why we're hopefully not going to pee our pants. Um, it's involved in sexual function, so it helps obtain, maintain erections. It's involved in orgasm, and it also just provides overall core stability. So it's part of why we're able to stay upright and move around. So it's a pretty amazing, magical group of muscles. But because it's located in an area that people are like, oh, it's the vagina, oh, it's the penis, it's often not talked about, not discussed because it's in this sort of taboo area. But people like me who are pelvic floor physical therapists, that area is our jam. That's where we work and spend our time. And it's, you know, probably one of my favorite things to talk about, obviously. And pain, pain during sex after childbirth can be related to damage to the pelvic floor during childbirth. Yeah, exactly. It can definitely be related to damage or dysfunction that the muscles develop after having a baby. I mean, those muscles stretch and lengthen during childbirth like three and a half times their length for the baby to come out. So obviously that's a big amount of stretch for those muscles to undergo. The nerves get stretched. So it can obviously lead to things like pain with sex afterwards. But there's other things that could be contributing here. I mean, after a person gives birth, whether it's a C-section or a vaginal delivery, their estrogen levels decrease a lot. And the vaginal opening and the clitoris and all of that is really dependent on estrogen. So if they're lacking estrogen after having a baby, that tissue isn't going to be as happy and healthy. And that can also lead to painless sex. So there are several different things that could be at play with someone having painless sex, but definitely the, the muscles can be a big component here. So she had her child two years ago. Would estrogen levels have returned to normal by now in most cases, or in some cases, can two years out, they, they can they still be low? It would depend if, she, you know, I'd have a lot of questions for her if she, when did, she, if she did breastfeed and how long she breastfed for and if she still was, because 
if someone's breastfeeding, that's going to impact the return of those hormone levels. So, you know, there's definitely things that could be contributing to when those levels return to normal um, or pre-pregnancy levels. So most likely, I would, I would guess they're probably returning, but there's always a chance that they're not. There's other things that could be impacting those hormone levels. So, you know, it's just there's so many things that could be involved that someone needs to think about as a, from my standpoint as a provider that I need to be thinking about when I'm talking to someone about painless sex because that area of the body just has so many systems at play. It can't just be, oh, it's the pelvic floor. There could be so many other things involved. But my guess, if it's two years out, I would assume it's gone back to pre-pregnancy level, but it's not necessarily. So she needs to have that checked too. Yeah. Or at least, you know, talked about. So if more people knew about this, would anybody have a baby? Is that why we don't talk <laughs> about this? Is to not discourage women from having babies? No, I think, I mean, that's an, a very interesting question. I, w- I would flip it and say if more people knew about it, I think we would hopefully provide more help afterwards. I mean, most, a lot of developed countries provide more resources and support to people after they've delivered in France postpartum patients are automatically given six pelvic floor physical therapy visits. It's just an automatic thing because they understand the impact of having babies and what it's going to do. And so it might surprise you, Dan, to hear that America is behind and not up to speed on what we should be doing and the resources we should be providing these patients. You went to other developed countries, like I said, France is one people talk about a lot, but Germany does this, the UK, um, Australia. It's just an automatic thing that these things are provided. So I, I wouldn't say, oh, if we started talking about more, less people would have babies. I would hope instead it would be we would get with the times and start providing resources to these people who deserve it and need it. Is somebody who has a C-section at less risk of these complications or side effects of birth? I, I guess they're not really side no. effects. That's not the right term is it yeah no i yeah no and i'm glad you asked because that's a, a myth no if you know a c-section is a insane not i shouldn't say insane but it's a big surgery a huge abdominal surgery and even though it seems like it wouldn't have the same impact it definitely does because they pull the uterus out of the body cut it open take the baby out and then sew it back up put it back in So there's still a lot of what I call trauma in that Mm -hmm. area. And so people can still have the same, you know, um, symptoms following delivery and those same like hormonal changes are going to happen regardless of the type of the delivery. So really they're having a C-section. A lot of people think like, oh, if I have that, I won't have these same issues. And that that's not the case. There's still going to be symptoms a person might experience that are similar to if they had a vaginal delivery. So can you share once again, uh, before we go, the, the names of both of those websites and the names of both those organizations that you recommend that people go to first who are facing the challenges the caller is facing? Yeah, sure. So the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health, and the website is ishwish.org. So I-S-S-W-S-H dot org. And the other one is pelvicrehab.com. So pelvicrehab.com, and that's to find a pelvic floor 
physical therapist. Dr. Rachel Gelman, pelvic floor physical therapist, owner of Pelvic Wellness and Physical Therapy in San Francisco. Their website is pelvicwellpt.com. And check out Dr. Gelman on Instagram, which does a lot of education work around these issues. She's at Pelvic Health SF on Instagram. Rachel, Dr. Gelman, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me again, Dan. Hi, Dan. I have a question about my sibling and respecting his privacy. My brother is seven years younger than me, so there's quite an age gap, and we don't have a close relationship, which I think definitely matters here. Um, When I got married five years ago, my brother, who has never been in a relationship until recently, he was in a longer run, about a year, um, but he, at my wedding, hit on two much, much older women for him. He's in his late 20s. They're in their 60s. And he was drinking and a lot of my friends know about it and saw it and I heard all about it. And well, it's been five years and I haven't brought it up. You know, we don't have a close relationship, but I mean, this really weighs on my mind. So I guess I want to just ask you, you know, given that he's never had a successful relationship, really. I mean, the woman he dated didn't even really speak English. Do you think I should try to have a conversation with him sometime, you know, in the future when we can visit and the pandemic is over and we're in person again? Should I try to bring this up and talk with him? I mean, maybe he has some proclivities that he's repressing and, you know, he's not going to be happy unless he lets himself really be himself. I don't know, Dan. I don't know. What would you say? What's your motivation? Is this coming from a place of genuine concern for your brother? Or are you just morbidly curious about what the fuck is up with your brother coming to your wedding in his late 20s and hitting on a couple of women when he got super drunk in their 60s? If it's the former, if you are genuinely concerned for your brother, if you want to have a closer relationship with your brother, I think you should go ahead and do that. You should reach out to him. You should open the conversation saying we've never been close and I regret that you know a seven-year age difference isn't insurmountable and I would like to know you better and and be there for you and play a larger role in your life and have you play a larger role in my life now that we're well into adulthood. Establish those bonds or reestablish those bonds if they were once there and they withered. And then if he wants to open up to you about anything that's making him unhappy and you don't even know if he's unhappy, maybe he's a perfectly content guy in his mid-30s who gets to bang a lot of women in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. Maybe that's his jam and he's not unhappily single. Don't fall prey to that thing that so many partnered people do where you think that anyone who's single wants to be partnered like you or anyone who's unmarried really aches to be married. There are a lot of happily single people out there and your brother, for all you know, is one of them. So I wouldn't barge into a conversation with your brother where you're pathologizing his single status and assuming there's something wrong with him that he's single and has never sustained a relationship for the long term. Could be that he's not interested in a long-term relationship. But if he is and he's in pain and he needs help, he's likelier to open up to you about being in pain and needing help if you guys have a connection, if you have some rapport. And so that's what you want to do now. If you if you really want to help him at some point, if you think he might need your help now, reestablish a relationship with him or establish a relationship with him for the first time in your adult life, be there for him. And then he will know that he can open up to you if this is something he wants to open up to you about at all. And he might not. And again, 
it might not be a problem. But returning to my opening salvo, examine your motivations. If it's just morbid curiosity because you want to go back to your friends who were at your wedding who saw him hit on those six-year-old ladies and tell them the rest of the story, tell them what your brother said to you when you asked him about it, don't do it. Don't barge into his life. But if you want to have a relationship with your brother, if you want to be there for him, if you want to get closer to him, give him a call. But talk about something else, at least at first. Hi, Dan. My partner and I have been together for about three years, and we are starting to talk about getting into the swimming community. I am bisexual. He is straight. We've both expressed interests in maybe doing a little bit of couple play or maybe just adding a third with a woman. What is the safest way to start to try and enter this community during the COVID-19 crisis? We are also really open to maybe exploring on apps. I'm sure maybe that's part of the advice that you'll give me is to try and meet someone over an app. But is there any safe way to enter the community during this time other than getting on apps and talking with potential couples? And I guess the second question, we have started to fantasize about a couple that we know. They're kind of acquaintance friends. We probably set their dogs sometimes. And just, I guess, general opinion, do you think it's a bad first wing activity to be with someone that you no. Do you think it's a safer option to meet someone kind of unbiased? Do you think that it could get messy asking friends to maybe play? Because that's kind of the first couple we had in mind. Um, we aren't sure of where they stand on the subject. But I just wanted to know, I guess, how do you think we should try to start to end this community and whether you think a good first step would be to gauge our friends' interests or do you think we should go with someone we don't know first? I don't know if you've turned on the news on television or you've looked at a dead tree newspaper recently. Uh, and I don't mean to sound patronizing. I'm sorry. COVID is raging out of control. There is no safe way to enter the swinging scene if what you mean by the swinging scene are swingers clubs, swingers parties, swingers cruises, swinger events right now. It's just not safe. It is a recipe for disaster, for contracting or spreading COVID. A swinging party almost by definition is an ideal super spreader event. And it just takes, as the research has shown, one person with COVID to enter an enclosed space where many people are breathing heavily. That's why there were so many infections traced back to church services and church choirs for dozens of people in that space to get infected and then for a handful of those dozens who get infected to die. So now is not the time to enter swingers spaces, real ones, virtual ones. Yes. Get online, meet people virtually, Skype with people, Zoom with people that you can make plans to see six months from now, nine months from now, when the vaccines are widely available, when we are on the other side of the worst of it. Now you should be laying the groundwork for all the great and awesome and kinky and fun, wonderful group sex that you're going to have later next year. As for hitting on your friends, well, the question you always have to ask yourself when you're going to hit on a friend is whether you're willing to lose that friend. Even if you have sex, sex can sometimes get weird. People can catch feelings and that can be very complicated, particularly if you are a couple and they're a couple. One person could catch strong feelings for another person in the other couple. That can be very destabilizing. Or they may sleep with you once and not want to sleep with you again. And then there's going to be hurt feelings if you want to sleep with them again. And that can 
really screw up the friendship. I do think it's possible for friends to have sex, which means, of course, I think it's possible for a friend to hit on a friend or a couple of friends to hit on a couple of other friends. But you really do have to, as I like to say, invite the no. You need to go into that conversation saying the answer is probably no. If it's no, tell us no. We'll never bring it up again. It'll be awkward the next time we hang out. Maybe it'll be awkward for the rest of this time that we're going to hang out. We will get past the awkwardness. But I promise you we're grownups. We can hear no and not be angry about it. Really beg for the no. And then if you get the yes, well, Yahtzee. And if you get the no and it's awkward, well, you've already agreed to power through the awkwardness. You've already acknowledged the awkwardness and that makes it likelier. Just pre-acknowledging the possibility for awkwardness makes it likelier that the friendship will survive the awkwardness if there is any awkwardness. And you know what? Even if they're into it, even if they want to fuck you guys, there's still going to be some awkwardness in that as you transition from friends to friends with benefits. Hi, uh, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I'm a cis straight female in my late 20s from Toronto. A friend of mine was going through a really difficult time, and in supporting him, we became very close. I began to have romantic feelings for him, which at first I tried to push away, thinking that it would ruin the friendship. Eventually, I decided I should tell him how I felt, and he very gently told me no. I did all the things that you said to do, Dan. I invited the no. I I told him we would still be friends no matter what. And he said he wanted that too. But ever since I told him, I, I felt him pulling away. We used to have deep conversations all the time, but now it feels like we're just acquaintances. When I started to feel like I was doing all the work of maintaining the friendship, I stopped reaching out to him. Now he'll text me every few days with some thought that he's had, but... He's literally not once in months asked me how I'm doing unless I ask him first, and even then only about half the time. It's like we used to have such a great dialogue, and now I just feel like an audience for his thoughts, like he doesn't really care about connecting with me anymore. On the days that he doesn't text me, I I feel better, but then he does, and it's this terrible punch to the gut. A reminder that not only is the dream that I had gone, but so is our friendship. I do feel that I've ruined it, and I wish I hadn't told him. My my problem now is that I would like to go back, actually, on what I told him before. I don't want to be friends right now, because it just hurts too much. I realize now that I was probably pinning all of my hopes and loneliness on someone that I shouldn't have, and that's not fair to him. But I also feel that as much as we both wanted things to be the same, it can't be anymore. I wanted to be mature and and kind and and to do all the right things that you said to do, but I'm just finding it so hard. So I wanted to ask you, Dan, is there a way for us to still be friends? Would I be a terrible person if I told him that I needed some space? And how can I do that without being a huge jerk? Saying that you can be friends after a relationship doesn't mean you have to be friends right away or saying you can be friends after a rejection, telling someone that you're going to hit on or ask out, that they can say no to you and you can still be friends. You're not obligated to turn around to pivot on a dime and be friends with them right away in the wake of that rejection. It is often harder for the rejected party, whether you're talking about the person who was rejected at the end of a relationship, they got dumped by someone, to pivot immediately to friendship. Also, it can be very difficult for someone who was in love with another person, had hopes for where this relationship could possibly go and then asked that person out or asked that person if if the feelings were mutual 
and they were told no. They were rejected. It can be as hard for someone in your situation to pivot to friendship immediately as it would for someone who got dumped after dating someone for a year or two or more. So absolutely take time away. Tell him the truth. Continue to tell him the truth. It's too painful for me to hear from you right now. Obviously, I was more emotionally invested in the possibility of us being together than I realized when I attempted to pivot immediately to friendship. And I can't do that. And hearing from you only hurts me. And I feel better on days right now when I don't hear from you. And that's a sign that I need for my own mental health, for my own sanity, for my own healing process, not to hear from you right now. I will reach out to you when I'm in a place where I am ready potentially to resume our friendship and reestablish our connection. That day may never come. You may be happier with this person out of your life. And look who this guy has revealed himself to be. You were there for him during a crisis. You were emotionally available to him. And he hasn't been emotionally available to you in what for you was a crisis after he rejected your request to think about dating you, think about becoming romantically involved with you. And he doesn't ask how you are. He doesn't seem to particularly care how you are. Maybe he thinks that's the kind thing to do. He doesn't want you to continue to be emotionally invested in him. He doesn't want to risk you seeing him as an emotional support system and therefore not reaching out to other people, including other potential future romantic partners. And he doesn't see himself as a future romantic partner. So he may mistakenly believe that not asking you how you're doing not inviting you to tell him how you're feeling right now is a kindness, but you're not experiencing it as a kindness. And you're not experiencing the connection that you have maintained with him as pleasant or pleasurable or constructive or healthy. So you have my permission to continue to do everything right, which right now means not having any contact with this person and telling him why. It's just too painful for me to hear from you right now. That's all you have to say. And then if he texts you out of the blue, you don't have to look at it. You don't have to read it. You don't have to respond. You don't have to engage until you're ready. And then maybe six months, a year, even a few years into the future, you may be in a place where engaging with him brings you joy again and the friendship can reestablish itself. Yes, when you asked him out, when you asked him if he would have a romantic relationship with you, you promised him you would still be friends after. What wasn't said but is always implicit when someone makes that statement is you might not be able to be friends again right away. Hey, Dan. This is Sarah, 36, in the Bay Area. I'm wondering, how do you feel about unsolicited baby pictures? An ex of mine just sent me a very silly photograph of a sign in his neighborhood while he was out for a walk. And then a few moments later, sent me a photograph of his baby that I guess was born in July. And we're, you know, we're on good terms. We check in every now and again, but I don't know. I had some emotions and feelings come up when I saw this photograph of this beautiful baby that my ex, you know, now has with his wife. And it causes one to analyze <laughs> one's life choices, I suppose. Um, so I don't know. I'm not sure if there's a question here or maybe just an emotional rant and maybe just some hurt feelings. But what do you think about 
unsolicited baby pictures. I think your reaction to receiving this baby pic is an indication that there were some elements of your relationship with this guy, some pieces of the potential future you could have had with him if you'd stayed together that you hadn't grieved yet in the wake of the end of this relationship. You've stayed in touch with this ex as many people do and it's something that I support and that amounted in practice mostly to it sounds like the friendly exchange of occasional text messages and he sent you a goofy picture and he followed up with a picture of his baby that he made with his now wife. You are not his now wife but you were in contention at one point to be his wife if you two had stayed together, if you two had married and to parent children with him, to scramble your DNA together with his if you decided to become parents. And all of those things didn't happen for you with him because – you two broke up and they're now happening for him with someone else. And you knew that. You knew he had a new partner. You knew that they had married. I assume you knew before you received the photo that they had had a child. So it seems to me that the issue here isn't really with him. It's with you. I don't think that he did anything that violated the parameters of your – post-relationship friendship and sending you this photograph, assuming you knew, again, that he'd met someone else, married someone else, and made a baby with someone else. He shares occasional details about his life with you. This baby is an important new detail about his life. And I think that what you need to do is kind of sit with that and dig in to the feelings you had when this relationship ended and locate those ungrieved feelings for – Making a baby with this guy. If seeing the baby he made with someone else gives you a big sad. Obviously, when the breakup occurred, you hadn't fully grieved the end of this relationship. If seeing this baby grieves you now. All right, before we get to this week's response calls, let's read some of your tweets. Landry Fleming tweets, you know you're a fake Dan Savage fan when you have nightmares, not about your partner cheating on you, but about you being a pud, poly under duress. Sorry about those nightmares, Landry. And if it's any consolation, I've had the exact same nightmares, but about being a mud monogamous under duress. And since there are a lot more muds out there than puds out there, mine might be the more realistic fear. Feathery Friend tweets, Listen to the latest Savage Lovecast and shocked that furry fandom didn't get a passing mention. An entire community devoted to placing human characteristics to animal characters might be just what this listener needed. I'm guessing the listener Feathery Friend is referring to here is the woman who had to fantasize about getting fucked by a dog to get off. And if it had occurred to me to mention furry fandom to that caller, I wouldn't have mentioned it. Furries object strenuously to any suggestion that there's something even inherently sexual about furry fandom, much less bestial. Vanity Fair linked furry fandom to bestiality in an article in 2001, and they are still, and quite rightly, catching hell for it. So yeah, let the record show that I didn't do that and I wouldn't do that. And finally, Luminia tweets... I am laying on my bed, staring at the ceiling, trying to get the motivation to finish putting the freshly washed sheets on my bed, listening to the Savage Lovecast, and suddenly they're talking about the heat death of the universe. What even is my life right now? I don't know about you, Luminia, but I found my conversation with astrophysicist Katie Mack highly motivating. 
I mean, if the universe could end at any moment, I want to go out on freshly washed sheets in a freshly made bed. All right. Thanks to everyone who posts about the show to your social media accounts. We do appreciate it. And if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the show, be sure to use the Savage Lovecast hashtag. And now your response calls. This is a response for the man whose friend made a joke about rape in their group chat. I wanted to suggest to him that if he raises this issue with her, he should not be surprised if she says she's also a survivor of sexual assault. So many women, both cis and trans, have experienced sexual assault, and almost all of us, if not all of us, live in a state of vigilance knowing that we could become victims of sexual assault. Some people deal with that fear and that trauma through humor. Dark humor exists for a reason. That's not to say that he doesn't have every right to be put off or hurt or offended by what she said. He also has a right to raise it with her and explain how those types of comments can make other people feel. I just want to suggest that the comment might not have come from a place of disregard or ignorance about sexual assault and its effects. Hi, this call is in response to episode 737 about the caller who had that friend make rape joke in the group chat. I could be wrong, but from what I've seen, those jokes never come from someone who's been sexually assaulted. And in my experience with the same thing, it just leaves me feeling triggered and isolated. And even in the case of John Mulaney, I love him too, Dan, but even though he may be educating some very ignorant men to the perspective of a woman alone at night, it still leaves a room of people laughing at her nightmare. And to be sitting in that room as a victim of sexual trauma, I guarantee you wouldn't be laughing. Anyway. I see you, caller, and I think we need to dead the rape jokes. Hi, Dan. This is in response to the caller who had to fantasize about having sex with a dog in order to come. I was a little surprised that you went to werewolves before you talked about either leather puppy play or furry play. But I also thought that the caller could maybe use the shame that is so built into this for her as a way to share it with somebody who might be into Dom subplay that maybe somebody dominant could berate her about it as she's trying to get off. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for me or a comment about this week's show? There are two ways to get them to us. You can call us at 206-302-2064, or you can use the voice memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment, and then email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. This holiday season, give the gift of the Magnum Savage Lovecast. The Magnum is twice as long. There are more guests, more questions, and no ads. Go to savagelovecast.com and click on gift. The subscription goes out right when you buy it. So if you want it to arrive on December 24th or 25th, buy it on December 24th or 25th. Tickets for Hump 2021, our 16th annual Hump Film Festival, go on sale Wednesday, December 16th. We've got a whole new show for you, packed with brand new films. We can't bring Hump to theaters this year or invite you to theaters this year, but filmmakers have given us permission to stream this year's festival online. And there's a variety of online viewing parties you can join, including viewing parties with Hump filmmakers and a viewing party with me on opening night where we can watch the films together. Go to humpfilmfest.com to look at the variety of dates, times, and viewing parties. There's still time also to make a film for this year's festival. The deadline for Hump submissions is January 8th. Go to humpfilmfest.com slash submit to find out all about how you can be in Hump. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Dr. Rachel Gelman on Twitter at RachelGD. 
DPT. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. And I'll be back at you next week on the installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.